All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter number four. James chapter number four. It's great to see everybody here that is able to make it this evening. As uh, Pastor Andy said, I know holiday weekends are tough and a little bit of a leaner crowd, but uh, I tell you what, I'm excited about this text. Excited about continuing to work our way through chapter number four. And uh, looking at part two of dissension among the ranks, dissension among the ranks, looking at how to deal with conflict within the church well for the glory of God. Last week, we were able to finish uh, verses one through three, and we'll continue to work through verse number 12 this evening. And let's go ahead and uh, bow our heads for a, a quick time of prayer. Just ask the Lord quiet heart and your mind. Father God, I just pray right now as we prepare to receive your word, I pray that our hearts would be fertile ground, tilled up and prepared and ready to receive the seed of your word. I pray that you would take that word, you would plant it deep in our hearts and it would grow and bear fruit that would remain. Father, we need you this evening. We need to hear from you. We need uh, your words. Father, I pray that you would do that work for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Dissension in the ranks. You'll remember last week, we primarily focused in on this idea that the source of all conflict is the human heart. You remember it. Uh, we followed through verses one through three, and we looked at some of the, the bleak imagery and pictures that, that James drew out in these first three uh, verses as he opens up with this question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, brothers and sisters in Christ within the body of Christ? There was, there was tension, there was issue, there was conflict. What causes that? In those first three verses, if you remember, James pointed out that these, these, these passions that are at war within us, Every single one of us have those passions, that lingering human nature, the, the depraved mankind that rears its ugly head far too often this side of eternity. We will never be truly free from that flesh. We'll remember Romans chapter 7 where Paul was reminiscing on this challenge, this war, this battle that he had within him, the good that he wanted to do, he didn't do, and the wrong that he knew he shouldn't be doing, that's what he found himself doing, right? Do you feel the tug, the pull of your flesh, the old man lingering again this side of eternity? Those passions, what are they? They're our human heart, our lust, our desires, your ambitions, our preferences, our pride. All these things, the human heart, deceitful and desperately sick and wicked. It is these things that cause the dissension, the quarreling, the fights among us. Do you remember the big idea? It was that conflict in the church should be expected. The church is a gathering, a group of redeemed Sinners, thus there will be conflict, there will be disagreement, there will be challenge. 
conflict in the church should be expected due to that lingering sin nature. However, God's grace. But God gives more grace. We'll hear this evening. That grace gives us the ability, allows us to rightly relate to each other in a supernatural type of way. A way that as the world looks on and says, there is nothing about this gathering and the unity that they have that makes any sense this side of eternity. It's only supernatural power that God gives us through the Holy Spirit that allows us to rightly relate to one another, even in the midst of conflict. And we're only able to rightly relate to one another as we humbly Submit ourselves to God's will and ways. When you think of the conflict that you have in your life, whether it be in your marriage relationship with a a parent to a child, a, a child to a parent, whatever that conflict may lie, it's typically because we're not following and submitting to God's will and ways at that given moment. Can conflict be summarized and simplified in that type of way? I think it can. And so there's an opportunity for us when conflict is exposed, when we do see it present in our life, we should stop and think and consider and be aware of the opportunity of conflict. The opportunity to do war with our flesh, to do war with those passions, to put them to death. As God's word calls us to do what is earthly in us. That was our big idea. If you remember the first observation again last week was that the source of all conflict is the human heart. This brings us to our second observation concerning how to deal with conflict in the church. It's this, the enticement of the world is a constant battle. This is an observation or more so maybe even an awareness that we need to be mindful of. In regards to relating to one another rightly for the glory of God, the enticement of the world is a constant battle. So again, this side of eternity, we should never expect to just sit back and coast our way into heaven. Conflict-free, issue-free, challenge-free, temptation-free, This is not the world that we live in. It is marred and broken by sin. Not only are there passions warring within us, but there are influences within this world. We are engaged in spiritual warfare, whether we realize it at every given moment or not. It's a universal truth that as a believer, we are engaged in spiritual warfare every moment of every day. Why? Because we have this lingering sin nature. We have these influences of the world, these philosophies, these ideologies that are seeking to pull us astray, to dilute and water down the beauty and the magnificence of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you feel that in the day that we are living in? I certainly do. Spiritual warfare. The things of God, his redemptive plan, his purposes in this world are at direct odds with that of this world that has been broken and marred by our sin and rebellion. Do you remember John 10, 10? Two 
things stand at opposition of each other. There is a thief who has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And then there is a Messiah, Jesus Christ, who has come to give us an abundant life. Two missions, two purposes, eternally at odds. And we, right here, God's creation, are caught in the middle. A war for our very souls. The souls of generations past, present, and even future. So the Lord comes and calls us home and finally deals that death blow to the head of Satan. And we are free from this flesh. We are to be mindful and engaged in this battle against the old man and this world. So again, verses one through three focus our attention on this depravity of our own human heart because of this sin nature that James Exposed in verses one through three, we should come to no other conclusion than this. We are absolutely 100% incapable of doing anything to hate, help, excuse me, ourselves. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? Do you know that I, in and of myself, and my strength, and my flesh, my wisdom, my knowledge, I am incapable of doing anything to help myself spiritually? Therefore, we are in desperate need of saving. Apart from God's grace that we will certainly look at this evening, apart from his mercy in our lives, we will fall prey to the passions that are at war within us. We will. And when we fall prey to these passions that are at war within us, and then we engage with other believers that are also doing battle and war with their passions within themselves, we're going to come in conflict with each other. We're going to have issue with how somebody is thinking or responding or speaking or acting or something to that nature. We're, We're going to be in conflict with one another. And what are we to do? So here in our text, again, James reminds us that we should not only be concerned about our own hearts, but we should be fully aware of the influence and the enticement of the world. It is active, alive, and right now today, it is well. We have the benefit of holding the completed canon of scriptures, and so we know that the world will pass away. And the lust therein, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, all of this is passing away. It will be destroyed once and for all. But until then, we engage. We are aware. We are to stand fast. To press on. So verse 4 points us to this second influence that causes these quarrels and fights among us. Look with me at verse number four. It starts out with this bold statement. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So this first phrase, you adulterous people, the Greek word here is in the vocative form is actually feminine, so it could be translated, you adulteresses. Why would it have this feminine nature to it? Because it would allude back to 
the nation of Israel and that marital relationship between God and his covenant people, his bride. And so much so, James is pulling that type of imagery forward and he would want them to understand as the church that we are the bride of Christ. And so he's seeking to help them understand the the warning, the weight of playing footsies with the world. The devastating effect and impact that is going on, maybe unseen and potentially unfelt at first glance, but we are an adulterous people when we desire to be friends with the world. This would have resonated and be understood clearly with his Jewish audience. They would remember that Old Testament imagery. They would remember that uh, adultery type of illustration and uh, in regards to the relationship with the Lord. They would have remembered the, the nation of Israel as sojourners in a foreign land. The influences that they battled and struggled with through their time and through history. They would have remembered the Ten Commandments. Do you remember the first two? You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall make no idols. This is God making a clear statement around the commitment and loyalty that his people are to have in this covenant relationship with the Lord. James is pulling all this imagery forward with this statement, you adulterous People, I don't know about you, but when I read this bold statement, does it not cause you to sit up, ears perk up a little bit and understand, whoa, whoa, who are you calling an adulterous people, right? It causes you to think and to examine, to take account of your actions and the state of your relationship. It causes us to take stock of the choices that we're making at that given moment to answer the question, am I an adulterous People, Am I being faithful to the one who has been so faithful to me? So it would have caused the readers here for James to stop dead in their tracks and to look inward and to consider their ways. They would have been grappling with this statement. Am I being unfaithful to Yahweh? So after getting his reader's attention with this bold statement. What does James do? He continues on with now some important teaching concerning friendship with the world. It's an interesting phrase, is it not? Friendship with the world. What is James getting at here? Verses four and five. Let's look first at this idea of friendship. We've seen this in the book of James. If you'll remember with me back to Chapter number two, verse number 23, where Abraham believed it was counted to him as righteousness. And how was Abraham described? He was described now as a friend of God. You remember that? Abraham's identity was described as a friend in terms of friendship. And so James is continuing this verbiage, the semantics, the language of friendship on, and he's using it now in a negative sense. Friendship, not of God and with God, but now friendship with the world. So James is using this, leveraging this imagery of friendship to highlight the reality 
that ultimate devotion can be given to only one person. Ultimate devotion, loyalty, commitment, fellowship. You can't serve two masters. Remember the servant on the mount. The double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Do you remember James chapter number one? So he's carrying these themes forward and he's causing them to understand, am I fully devoted to the Lord? Or am I in friendship with the world? And if somebody that was picking up this letter and reading it was having a light view or understanding of friendship with the world, James mixes no words. This is a clear warning. This is a shot across the bow of all of his readers and helping them to understand the, the, the importance of not engaging in friendship with the world because it has devastating impacts in the life of a believer. So looking back to this opening statement of verse number four and considering the undertones of that covenantal and marital relationship, James is reminding them that they are either going to be faithful to the Lord and walk in his ways or they will, in essence, cheat on or have an affair with the world. This is what's at stake here for James. Playing with the world. Engaging with the old man, allowing worldly influences into our life is a big deal in the eyes of God. Have they allowed another's affections to lure them away? Have they let their guard down and compromised the affections of their heart? Who are they actively in friendship with? These are the questions that James would have been calling his readers to consider and we bridge the gap of time now and we make application for us in our day, in our culture, in our setting. The questions remain the same for application. Who are we actively in friendship with? Have we let our guard down and compromise the affections of our heart? Have we allowed another's affections, friendship with the world, Worldly ideologies, worldly thinking, worldly influences to impact the choices that I make. So friendship with the world, James calls it here in chapter four. What is the world? What does James have in mind here for our understanding of this idea of friendship with the world? What does that look like? What is James causing his readers to understand this to be? Because I don't know if you're like me, I've, I've sat through a lot of preaching and teaching around the world, and it can be some of this like elusive term, like it's a little figurative, and yeah, just don't have friendship with the world. Everybody good? All right, moving on, right? We, we know that's bad. We know we should be in friendship with the Lord, and so, so we move on. But how should we understand the world? Its influences and its allurement and enticement away from a relationship with the Lord. These, are, these things are, are at enmity with each other. So we need to understand the world rightly. One commentator described it as being united closely with 
the values that would be antithetical to God and his kingdom. Friendship with the world could mean that we are united closely with values that would be antithetical to God and his kingdom. So looking back at our previous chapters, the teaching of James in our context, what could that look like? It could be seen in our speech. A wildfire sets ablaze. It could be seen in our actions with the poor and lowly in our society. We see a brother in need and we give them a fleeting word of blessing, but we offer them nothing when we have the means to do so. It could mean trusting in our own fallible works to earn favor in the eyes of God as opposed to understanding that our righteousness in the eyes of God are filthy rags apart from his grace and mercy. I am nothing and have nothing to offer the Lord. Could be seen, do you remember, in our response to trials and difficulties that we encounter, do we shake a fist at the Lord when we don't experience this elusive American dream or do we understand that we can count it all joy when we fall into various kinds of trials? It's because through those hardships and those trials that God is changing and working and moving. To hold these values these values that are antithetical to God and his kingdom. To hitch our wagon proverbially to those things and to act upon them, it's to be in a friendship with the world. That results in enmity with God. James doesn't stop there, right? He continues to level up this this warning. Yet again, friendship with the world when it's all said and done actually establishes oneself as an enemy of God, meaning our actions, our desires, our thinking have so closely aligned with the values and philosophies that would be antithetical to God and his kingdom that, that it has caused us to line up with the enemy, Within that spiritual warfare, we are not aligned with God and his will and his purposes. We are not pursuing his redemptive plan for the nations. We are not heralding the gospel. We're not denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him. We are not counting it all joy when we fall into various kinds of trials. We are not looking and seeing needs and opportunities and engaging as the Lord would lay on our hearts. We are using our speech to tear down and to destroy, and to slander, and to hurt, so that we can get a step up. We're allowing friendship with the world to be our way. James, then in verse number five, look with me there, he appeals to scripture. He says, or do you suppose... It is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns 
jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. So he looks to scripture in verse number five to help support his teaching on this topic. Do you see it there? Again, James poses another question. He leverages lots of questions in his teaching, doesn't he? Are you seeing that? Questions are causing you to think, to stop and to pause and to consider your way. He does it yet again. Do you suppose that there's no purpose that the scripture declares and gives testimony that God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has placed in mankind? It's interesting in this section here that James is not looking to a direct quotation from the Old Testament here. Rather, he is pointing to this broader testimony of the Old Testament where we can clearly see a frequent theme of God's jealous affection towards his covenant people. We see this in Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, other places where where God demands our ultimate loyalty. You remember those testimonies in scripture? Can you remember the the times where God has shown forth this yearning, this jealous desire to be in relationship with his image bearers, his covenant people? Just as a husband serves as the covenant bearer and protector within the marriage, God certainly or excuse me, he, meaning a spouse, would, would certainly never stand idly by while the, the covenant that he made with his wife in marriage would be compromised by allowing his wife to express affections towards another man. Men, you, you, would, you would never stand for that. He yearns jealously to be in right relationship with his people. He longs to have that intimate, unbridled fellowship with his people. In a similar way that we as men would never stand for that in our covenant relationship with our wives, God, as the initiator of this covenant relationship, yearns jealously for his bride's affection. simply desires to be in relationship with us. He doesn't desire boxes checked, mountains of works that have been piled up in his name. He simply longs for fellowship, for faithfulness. To understand your relationship rightly in those terms. One commentator summarized it well. God's holy demand for his people's unadulterated loyalty is clear. His holy demand. This isn't some rogue, jealous boyfriend or spouse who's keeping his wife from other good and right relationships. This this is a holy demand. God has created us for his glory. God desires us to be in relationship with him. This is a holy and right demand 
that is owed to the Lord as creator of all things. He demands for his people's unadulterated loyalty. So that being said, James quickly runs to the aid of his potentially overwhelmed and defeated readers at this stage of his letter. What does he do? What does James do in verse number six? James infuses an incredible amount of gospel hope into his readers. We have nothing to offer. We are quick to wander. We have these passions at war within us. The old man is waging a war against us. We have this influence and enticement and allurement of the world that is right there. The burden of that weight can feel heavy when taken on ourselves. But aren't you thankful for the great exchange of the gospel? The great exchange that Christ takes our unrighteousness and in his grace and mercy, he gives us his righteousness. That's why Jesus can say, come to me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because there is no demand of the law on us. There is no checks in the boxes that we have to make on our own strength and our own way and our own wisdom that has all been lifted from us. The law has been perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And he went to the cross and he shed his blood and he says, confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. The simple, gracious beauty of the gospel. Jesus takes my sin, pays for them perfectly, and offers me his perfect righteousness. Because if you remember Abraham back in chapter two, what was the condition to be in friendship with God? Was it not righteousness? Abraham believed and it was counted to him as what? Righteousness. Therefore, he was a friend of God. So this is the beauty of this story. We are in desperate need of saving Our future is bleak in our own strength and in our own way. But God, we see it in verse number six. You see it there. But he gives more grace. I love that verse. I love that phrase. My passions that are at war. Friendship with the world. Enmity with God. That future is bleak. Verse six, but he gives more grace. Next point we're going to look at this evening is the grace of God is standing ready for the humble of heart. The grace of God is standing ready for the humble of heart. The jealous expectations of a holy God can feel unattainable at times, but here we are. But he gives more grace. And it is that very grace that is so sufficient for us in our time of weakness. When we feel crushed against the weight of 
a jealous God, when we feel like we just can't match up or we can't keep expectations as they should be, when we can't obey as consistently as we should, when the passions are at war within us, when we find ourselves aligning and following the ideologies and the philosophies and the ways of the world, he gives more grace and that grace is sufficient for us in our time of weakness. Is it not? Are you thankful for God's grace in your weakness when you can't measure up? When you can't do it the way you should? Are you thankful for God's grace? So get this, the yearning jealousy of God is only exceeded by the perfect and abundant grace of God. Did you get that? The yearning jealousy of God that demands 100% committed loyalty to the Lord. It's only to be outdone and exceeded by the perfect and abundant grace of God towards us in Christ Jesus. So what does James do? He follows up this beautiful statement, but he gives more grace with a direct quote from the Proverbs. Proverbs 3, verse 34. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Our second point tonight is that the grace of God is standing ready. It's standing ready for whom? The humble of hearts. So thankful, Pastor Andy tweaked some of our text of our songs and included this simple reality. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to whom? The humble. God is eager to forgive. Just as he yearns jealously for your affection, he is eager, willing, and ready to offer grace in our time of need. He's eager to forgive He's eager to restore. He's eager to welcome back all who come to him in a spirit of humility. There's one responsibility that we have, and it's humility. It's recognizing that God is the God of all creation, right? He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He created all things that God is creator and we are creation. There's humility that simply exercises. There's a disposition and a demeanor that God desires from us in this simple humility. He opposes the proud. This stands in connection with enmity with God. When we think of Friendship with the world. It's a denial of God's sovereignty and providence in our life. In our pride, in our arrogance, we say, hey, you know what? God, you are not enough. As we sang last week, Christ is not. You're not Christ. I'm missing out on something. I need something else. I need something more. So I'm going to take matters into my own hand. I'm going to pursue my own way, my own time. I want to pursue the passions that are in my heart. And I'm going to align with the world in friendship. 
God's grace is standing ready for us, and it simply needs humility to be deployed into our life in that moment of need. So humility is the foundation upon which God grows and strengthens his relationship with his covenant people. Humility is the foundation that our relationship with God rises and falls upon. It's critical, mission critical to maintaining a right relationship with the Lord. Without humility, it's impossible. Humility is the single attribute that unity within the church will either be achieved or will crumble upon. Where there is a supernatural supernatural move of humility among brothers and sisters in Christ, God is there and he is working in that group of believers where pride begins to posture itself over the needs of others, disorder and every vile practice is sure to follow. Do you remember that from the end of chapter number three that we connected last week? So it's on this heel, on the heels of this expression of grace and humility that James now in verse number seven is going to launch out into a number of imperatives, right? You, you see him there here in verses seven through ten. And in this series of imperatives, he's, he's going to call his readers that have been described as double-minded, worldly, quarrelsome. He's calling them to a place of repentance. How do I move from a place of friendship with the world back to a state of friendship with God? Verses 7 through 10 gives us the blueprint. Gives us a playbook, if you will, for us to follow and to consider how we get back on track in our relationship with the Lord. What does the Lord use? What grace does he bring into our life to draw us back to himself? It's verses 7 through 10. Look at me, verse number 7. It says this. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So James simply lays out this systematic approach to restoring any relationship. I don't care what the context or the situation might be. Any relationship can be helped by this practical and godly wisdom. Right. Remember, in our introduction to James, that's what we described this book to be. This is practical and godly wisdom that James is pointing his readers attention to. If you've got conflict, if you have issues In the church, in any relationship, God gives us the blueprint to follow right here. And it starts with humility, closely connected with humility. Verse number seven simply says to do what? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. On the foundation of humility, submission should follow. Humility 
will breed submission. It will allow submission to come to full fruition in our life. These two are connected at the hip, so to speak. They work in tandem with each other. One cannot submit without being humble. One cannot have humility without submission. They are closely tied to each other. Submission to the Lord. This is resting in and trusting in the sovereign hand of the Lord as he guides and directs your life. This is the call to discipleship. Jesus says what to his disciples? The earliest stages of his earthly ministry. Two words, follow me. Follow me, Jesus called to his disciples. This was a call to what? Submission to Christ. This was radical abandonment of their selves. This is radical abandonment of their desires, their ambitions, their dreams, their careers. It was submission to Christ. Jesus says, follow me. Inherent in the call to follow Christ is the denial of oneself, the taking up of a cross and following Jesus. This is biblical submission. Being a disciple and follower of Christ is a life of submission. So when when James gives us practical wisdom, he says, submit yourselves therefore to God, God, he's calling them back to the earliest stages of their call to discipleship. Remembering that first time where they recognized Jesus as Savior and Lord. And if they've wandered away from that submission to return back to, to it. Second, James offers another imperative, but he deploys this idea of, of parallelism. Right? He will give an imperative and then he will offer a response that the Lord gives as this imperative is obeyed. Or a positive outcome that will follow. We see this In the following verses, resist the devil and what will happen? He will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is God standing ready to embrace the wayward child. He longs to experience this fellowship with his bride. This next imperative that follows drawing near to God. It kicks off a subset of imperatives that focus in on godly sorrow. We see this in Psalm 51 and other passages, but here James calls his readers to a disposition and a posture of grieving over the friendship with the world that they have allowed to be in their life. There is joy, there's happiness, there's peace in a relationship with the Lord, but only through the valley of godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is an expression of a right understanding of the ugliness of sin. A broken relationship. The source of all conflict is the human heart. The enticement of the world is a constant battle. The grace of God is standing ready for the humble at heart. I'll quickly give our final uh, point and uh, just introduce it and we will 
maybe look at this a bit more in uh, our A&I time, the speech of the church reveals the theology of the church. We see this in the final two verses. The speech of the church reveals the theology of the church. Say, Eric, what in the world are we talking about here, right? Our speech reveals what we believe to be true about God. This is ultimately what's going on here in these final two verses, right? This is a brother or a sister who is taking the place of accuser and judge. They are leveraging the law for their own gain. They are manipulating and leveraging the law over somebody else within the body of Christ. And they have placed themselves as judge. And in doing so, they've completely disregarded The command of the law to us as brothers and sisters in Christ to love our neighbor as ourself. So instead of loving and encouraging and helping, they're condemning, they're judging, they're holding down a brother or sister in Christ. My speech should align with my faith and my faith should align with the truth of God's word. That God alone is lawgiver and judge. You see that there in verse 12. God truly is sovereign over all peoples at all times. He alone is able to save and destroy eternal life and eternal destruction. They are his alone to offer. So instead of judging a brother or sister, love them. Instead of slandering that brother or sister, encourage them. Instead of pursuing your demands and your preferences, defer to that other brother and sister. Instead of quarreling, pursue unity. Speech of the church reveals the theology of the church. Friends, James is calling us to remember that conflict in the church should be expected. But let us remember this evening that his grace allows us to rightly relate to each other in a supernatural way, only as we submit to God's will and ways for our lives. No matter our background, no matter our race, our socioeconomic status, no matter where we come from, God can allow us to rightly relate to each other in the context of the body of Christ for his glory. And when things go awry, and they will, let's look to James 4. Let's consider our own ways and let's pursue unity in the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for your love, your grace, your mercy in our lives. I pray that you would help us to put into action Now these words that we have heard from James 4, not to be a forgetful hearer, but to be a doer.